Welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. As you've heard me say a few times now, we launched a spin-off podcast called Damages. It's following all of the climate litigation that's happening all over the world right now. There are over 1,800 climate cases in courts all over the world at the moment. So obviously, we're not keeping tabs on every single one of them, but we are trying to follow quite a few. And... We're doing a season right now that turned out to be pretty timely. We're explaining a lot of different kind of ins and outs of the legal system and the various strategies that are being used both to try to further climate action and to try to block it. So go check that out, especially as we all prepare for the ruling in West Virginia versus EPA. I'm still hoping the court will say, we don't actually need to rule on this. There's no problem that we can solve here. But, you know, probably wishful thinking. At any rate, Today's episode of Damages is one that I think is so important. I wanted to bring it to you in full here. It is about amicus briefs. I know, sounds very legal and wonky, but these are briefs that are prepared by lawyers who are quote unquote friends of the court. Um, This idea came about, you know, in the days when the internet didn't exist and libraries weren't even all that accessible. And the court could look to experts in different fields or, you know, folks who had worked on similar cases for insight into how to rule on a particular case. I've been noticing a huge increase in these. I've also noticed that lots of different right-wing organizations have very well-funded amicus brief programs. And I've been wondering why that is. Because, you know, is any judge really surprised to hear that the Cato Institute is anti-regulation? Probably not. I wanted to figure out what was going on here. And so I talked to the person who knows the most about it and has been trying to really get on top of this issue. And that is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from the state of Rhode Island. He joins me in this episode today to explain why there's been an increase, why that matters, and how it impacts all of the various things that the court is doing now. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Welcome back to Damages. I'm Amy Westervelt. Today, another super wonky legal thing that I swear to God is fascinating. Amicus briefs or amicus briefs. It's Latin and I hear lawyers pronounce it both ways. If you know the correct pronunciation, please just share it with me. At any rate, amicus or amicus, is Latin for friend. So these are also sometimes referred to as friend of the court briefs. And way back before the internet and before large accessible libraries even, judges and their clerks couldn't so easily look up other cases that were relevant to the case at hand. So lawyers or other experts would submit these briefs that would point out similarities between the cases they were hearing and previous cases. It evolved over the years to include expert briefs more generally, but in the last decade or so, it has morphed into something else entirely. Just a mountain of anonymously funded briefs 
pushing particular agendas, especially since the passage of Citizens United in 2010, which enabled endless amounts of anonymous corporate funding. There's just been an explosion. Now, as you might assume, the Supreme Court does have disclosure rules about these things. Of course it does. But they're ridiculous. You only have to disclose funding if it went toward the actual hands-on manual production of the brief. So, like, if Charles Koch paid someone to type that brief, you have to disclose it. But if he funded an entire amicus program at your think tank, you don't. Just to give you a sense of how rapidly this is exploding right now, Amici filed 781 briefs in the 2014 Supreme Court term. That was a more than 800% increase from the 1950s and a 95% increase from 1995. And the number of filings has just continued to rise since then. In the court's 2019 term, Amici filed 911 briefs. The 2020 term featured almost 940. Some high-profile cases will even draw more than 100 amicus briefs. And there's another disturbing trend. Amici showing up at the certiari stage, or cert. That's the phase when the Supreme Court is being petitioned to hear a case or reject it. Between 1982 and 2014, the percentage of petitions with at least one cert stage amicus more than doubled. When I first started looking into this, it really didn't make sense because I thought, is any judge really going to be surprised or swayed by a brief from the Cato Institute that says, we don't think you should regulate business? No. But here's the thing. They're not swayed by the organization. They're swayed by the attorney representing them. And any good amicus program worth its dark money knows which lawyers will get which judge's attention. At the cert stage, these connected lawyers can improve the chances of the court viewing the case as cert-worthy. At any stage, seasoned members of the Supreme Court bar add credibility to amicus briefs. The late Justice Ruth Ginsburg actually talked about this in a 2008 interview. She said, clerks often divide the amicus briefs into three piles. Those that you can skip entirely, those that should be skimmed, and those that should be read in full. If the attorney submitting the amicus brief has significant experience before the court, it would be more likely that their brief would be placed in a higher priority pile. So it is actually an effective strategy. And more and more Supreme Court justices are actually citing amicus briefs in their rulings. From 2008 to 2013, the Supreme Court cited amicus briefs 606 times in 417 opinions. Between the 1994 and 2003 terms, the court's majority opinion referenced an amicus brief only 38% of the time. And in earlier terms, like 1946 to 1955, it was less than 20% of the time. So it's gone from about 18% in the 50s to more than 100% today. Another tactic folks will use with amicus briefs is to gather so many of them that it gives the justices the sense that there's some kind of consensus behind one side or the other. Of course, 
What all of this points to is the ability of people with deep pockets to tilt the courts in their favor. You would think that the Supreme Court would just improve its disclosure requirements and be done with it. But for some reason, it hasn't done that. So in the meantime, Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from the great state of Rhode Island, has proposed legislation that would force the issue. He's here today to walk us through that legislation and why the Supreme Court resists transparency and how this whole amicus thing is really messing with democracy. That's coming up after this quick break. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. You press on the Supreme Court to take action, and their first response is to pretend that there's no problem. Mm -hmm. And then you keep pressing, and um, ultimately, within the judiciary, somebody realizes, okay, there actually is a problem. And um, they begin to do some work on it, I don't know whether that's quietly blessed by the Supreme Court or despite the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's happened twice. It happened first on amicus disclosure, where the Supreme Court said, nothing to see here, not a problem, go away. But then the Judicial Conference said, okay, this is actually a really serious question. And they set up a special committee to look into it. And Judge Millett, um, as a part of that discussion in the public uh, meeting, I guess, said, hey, we really got to know who the power is behind the throne on these amicus briefs. And she's Mm -hmm. obviously respected D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judge. So um, despite the Supreme Court's indifference, that has been taken up within the federal judiciary. And then recently the um, peculiar failure of the court to disclose um, gifts in the form of so-called personal hospitality, Mm -hmm. which is read by the Supreme Court does not require that you even know the person who's giving you personal hospitality. Not exactly the customary definition of the word personal. 
Right. Um, but again, um, I wrote a letter asking for an explanation to all the different circuit courts of appeal. And after ignoring it for quite a long time, on the eve of our hearing, uh, the circuit courts sent in a joint response, um, I think again through the judicial conference saying, okay, you're right, this is serious and we're gonna have a group of people look at it. Once again, I don't know if that is despite the Supreme Court or because they got a quiet signal from the Supreme Court saying, you better, <laughs> you better look into this. <laughs> White House right. isn't going away. Right. But that's yeah, twice that we've been through the same routine with them, which is they pretend that everything is fine. And it's only when you persist that somebody then acknowledges, no, it is not fine. It is really wrong. And now yeah. we have these, you know, ongoing reviews. But it would be far better if the court from the get-go took this seriously and took it up, you know, of its own volition and didn't put us through all these delays and prevarications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think um, there's a sense that that uh, the threat of Congress legislating this versus them setting their own rules kind of drives it along as well, like makes them take it more seriously? Lord knows what the <laughs> what the um, reason is for them to be so obtuse about yeah. what seemed to be unbelievably obvious ethics and conflicts problems. Yeah. Um, but I do think that knowing that Congress isn't going away has created some faint whiff of accountability, at least in the judicial conference, if not in the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like in a lot of these cases, the justices themselves probably do have some inkling of who's funding what, but this would provide more transparency for the public. Is that is that accurate? Or, or do you think the judges themselves are often in the dark too? Um, to the extent that Supreme Court justices are in the dark about who's behind some of these right-wing amici, that is a case of willful blindness. Mm-hmm because they often often go and sit with these groups and with their funders Mm -hmm. at Federalist Society dinners when all the chums come together. (laughs) Right. So if if you can't figure that out as you're sitting at the Federalist Society gala at the table with – front group organizations and those who fund them, then you have a problem of perspicacity unbecoming of a judge. Yeah, yeah. But you think it would, I mean, it seems to me like it would be- The problem is if everybody knew, then the story would get far worse for the court. Right. Because what we have right now is these little flotillas of right-wing amici show up. They ask the court to do X. The court almost invariably does X, or at least some part of X. 
And there's a stunning win rate. Mm -hmm. And if it were public, who was behind those briefs, it would make the problem of the win rate look even worse. Right. It would cross-reference likely with funders of Republican senators who participated in packing the court right. with these right-wing operative judges. And it would trace back to entities funding the selection of these very justices. Right, right. So this is, um, a, I, they, they know enough to know that this is a world in which they don't like, they don't want the information to get out there because of their own problems. Right, right. Um, I know I read in, in your, I read, I was just telling Megan before you got on that I read your um, Yale Law Journal um, article again this morning. And I know you note in it a few different groups that show up a lot. Are there any particular attorneys who um, are kind of like popular picks of these groups to, um, to be counsel on these briefs? Yes, there are. And I, I just don't have them top of mind, but there are some, mm-hmm. you know, pretty regular frequent flyers in yeah. the legal regime around this. The most obvious one who comes to mind right now in the wake of this wretched Cruz versus Federal Election Commission <laughs> decision yeah. is Don McGahn, mm-hmm. right? Don McGahn, who picked the last three judges or was told who to pick by the Federalist Society, right. was, was White House counsel during their selection. Let's put it that way. And Mitch McConnell, who orchestrated their confirmation through extraordinary obstacles, like, for instance, mm-hmm. faking an FBI background investigation faking an FBI supplemental background investigation for Kavanaugh. Um, are, are, they're on the same brief telling the court what to do. And mm-hmm. she's a big surprise. The court does as instructive. Right. But, right. I mean, if you want to, if you want to look at a like quick payback loop. Yeah. Cruz yeah. VFEC is like the perfect payback loop. Yeah. That case in general is pretty, um, Stunning on multiple levels on that front. Um, But also totally predictable because the um, Federalist Society justices are absolutely determined to expand the role of dark money for very obvious but also very unfortunate political reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted, I know you have to go soon, but I had one more question just in terms of, um, I'm assuming that there are various dark money funded efforts against these disclosures. Have you come up against any, um, I don't know, obvious kind of um, dark money funded opposition to improving disclosure and transparency? Uh, yes. I mean, there's a whole... Um, right-wing media operation to try to discredit it right? Um, and to point out that it's um, hypocritical of Democrats to play by the rules and at the same time want to clean up the rules. Mm-hmm. That's not an actual hypocrisy, but they frame it as one as part of their narrative. Right. So 
you certainly see that in action. And of course, there's this mad rush to build a constitution, a mad rush for the court to build a constitutional right to dark money mm-hmm. that will get ahead of our legislation requiring yeah. disclosure of dark money. Right. And if you want to go back to Amici, the case in which they did that, I mean, it's just a beauty of a case. It's called Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus uh, Bonta at the end of the day. Went through a number of uh, respondents as the officials changed in California, but Americans for Prosperity Foundation, Mm -hmm. which is the 501c3 twin to the Koch brothers 501c4 battleship Americans for Prosperity, mm-hmm. with massive overlap between the two. Same address, overlapping boards, same staff. You could pierce the corporate veil between the two with a banana. Yeah, yeah. And they pick Americans for Prosperity Foundation as the petitioner to try to get this dark money constitutional right to have a foundation and when they do that, 50, at least 50, you can, it's, it's actually more, but it gets harder and harder to prove as you get into these small groups with no records. But at least 50 dark money amici showed up at the certiorari stage, mm-hmm. at the cert stage to push the Supreme Court to take up this case. And by the way, it lurked for a very long, strange period of time at the Supreme Court. And they only took it up once they had Judge Barrett giving them six. And they only took it up literally two days after the attack on the Capitol when everybody in America was looking elsewhere. Wow. January 8th, they took the case up. So they've got the case of the twin of the Koch brothers' political battleship supported by 50 dark money front groups Hmm. that they take onto their docket in the shadow of the attack on the Capitol. Hmm. And sure enough, they create a constitutional right to dark money for this group. Right, right. I've been looking at this with respect to the um, the climate cases because the the very specific argument they're making about political speech in those cases is um, I don't know it it keeps jumping out to me as like a, a broadening of the Citizens United stuff and I think they're going to try to get it to the Supreme Court and blur the line between fraud and lying. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think if you look at the tobacco fraud case that the Department of Justice won, Mm -hmm. it makes an extremely good template for a climate fraud case against the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court never took it up. The Mm -hmm. DOJ won big in a just devastating decision by the D.C. District Court, which was powerfully upheld in a unanimous decision by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Supreme Court declined 
to review it. So that's floating out there as a mm. template and a way to end corporate fraud. But just you wait for these guys to say yeah. that, oh, well, when it's uh, petitioning government. Right, exactly. Yeah. Then there's special protection here and the government of all people is in the worst possible position to police fraud against itself because they treat government as an interested party rather than as the popular summation of the public will. Right. So yeah, you could see that you could see that coming just as clearly as you could see the AFPF case coming. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. No problem. Go vote. Thank yeah. you so much for your time and I'll um I'll keep you guys posted. Keep on this. There's out. lots of good material and we haven't been there paying anywhere near enough lot. attention. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Have a good yep. rest Bye-bye. of your day. Bye-bye. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Damages is an original Critical Frequency production. Our editor and senior producer is Sarah Ventry. Mixing and mastering by Mark Bush. The show is written and reported by me, Amy Westervelt, with additional reporting by Karen Savage, Meg Duff, and Lyndall Rollins. Our fact-checker is Wudan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton of the First Amendment Project. Our theme song this season is Bird in the Hand by Forenone. Artwork is by Matthew Fleming. The show is supported in part by a generous grant from the File Foundation. If you'd like to support our work, please rate or review the podcast wherever you're listening and share it with friends. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.